Hi, I'm Jonathan Burke, Professor of Finance at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And I'm Jules van Binsbergen, a finance professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And this is the All Else Equal podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to be revisiting a question that we have addressed in a previous episode which is the business decision of when should you investigate an implausible theory? Because implausible theories, if you have a breakthrough and they turn out to be correct, they can lead to a lot of value creation. But obviously, by definition, the probability that they're true are going to be quite low because otherwise it wouldn't be an implausible theory. And, you know, we spoke at length about this in a previous episode, and we spoke about how all else equal thinking can be applied to decide whether or not you should investigate the implausible theory. But the one thing we've learned over the years is there's no better way to communicate something than by example. And so, Jules, the two of us were speaking about COVID and the origin of COVID. And we thought to ourselves, this is such a wonderful example of an implausible theory that should have been investigated. And so we thought we'd do a whole show on it. Absolutely. We could not think of a better case study than this one. Usually what happens is there's an implausible hypothesis. Eventually somebody investigates and we realize it's true. And then afterwards everybody says, well, that was obvious. And we just miss this idea that people don't think it's obvious until you present the facts. And so today we're going to look at the hypothesis that COVID started in a Chinese lab. I think many people think that's pretty implausible. And we're going to talk about why it's certainly worth investigating. Yes, it's worthy of scientific research to get to the bottom of this question. To me, there are some pretty important smoking guns here. The first one is the world's leading lab that looks at viruses and spends time studying viruses happens to be in Wuhan. And the second thing is, everybody seems to agree this is a bat virus, and the bats live more than 1,000 miles away from Wuhan, but there is no evidence that on the route the bats took to the wet market from where they live to Wuhan, there's any evidence of the spread of COVID. Those two facts are certainly worth thinking about, because it's pretty coincidental that the disease started at the location of the world's most advanced virus lab. I think the first time that this point really hit home for me was when John Stewart said, when everybody in Hershey, Pennsylvania is covered in chocolate, maybe it has something to do with the fact that one of the largest chocolate factories is right there. Trying to come up with another explanation why everybody is covered in chocolate might be worth investigating, but it seems to go pretty far to suggest that that certainly is not the explanation. Our guest today is Matt Ridley. Matt Ridley is a very successful journalist. He's been an economist in the world's leading newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal, the Daily Telegraph, the Sunday Telegraph, and the Times. But I think he's most famous as a science writer. He's had a number of very, very successful science books, The reason he's on our show, though, is his latest book, which is called Viral. And in that book, 
Matt Ridley investigates the origin of COVID. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. And I guess my first question is, at the time that you were looking into where COVID came from, most people thought the idea that it came from a Chinese lab seemed rather implausible. So what made you spend some effort looking into this? Yeah, it's a really good question because I spent the first couple of months of the pandemic reassuring other people that the lab leak theory was very implausible and can be rejected. And I did that based partly on what virologists were saying to me and partly on my own imperfect knowledge of how sophisticated virology had become. So that I was saying things like, look, Mother Nature's a far better genetic engineer than we are. We can't improve the infectivity of a virus nearly as much as she can. So it's pretty unlikely that they would have tampered with it. The second reason was because I assumed that there were labs like this all over China studying this kind of thing, that they'd found the virus in Wuhan somewhere locally. When I found that this was the main bat SARS virus, coronavirus laboratory in the world, let alone China, that they had indeed found the closest relative of SARS-CoV-2, but they'd found it a thousand miles away and brought it to that lab. The geographical coincidences began to seem interesting enough to investigate. And then, for me, the tipping point was two things that happened in May of 2020. The first was a paper by Alina Chan, who ended up being my co-author on the book about it, in which she said, genetically, this virus was well adapted to human beings from the very start. It didn't need to go through a period of rapid genetic adjustment the way SARS did. And that's pretty odd and suggests that it had had previous exposure to human cells somewhere. And the second reason was because that very same week, George Gao, the head of the Chinese Centers for Disease Control, came out and said, that seafood market is not where it started. We're pretty sure that was just an amplifying event, a super spreader event. And when I saw those two pieces of information, I thought, okay, that combined with the geographical coincidence of this pandemic starting in the very city where a lab was studying this, but not in the very province where these viruses are found, means that I've got to look into this theory a lot more closely. But I wasn't by any means convinced of it at that point. You know, I was still, I thought it needed investigating. Not that it was definitely going to turn out to be as strong a hypothesis as I think it is. And so why do you think these seemingly obvious pointers to the Chinese lab weren't taken seriously initially? Why didn't they think, well, the most plausible theory is if the world's most sophisticated lab is right where it came from, that it came from the lab? Well, in fact, the Western virologists who are closest to this topic did think that. But we didn't find out for more than a year that that's what they secretly thought because they exchanged emails at the end of January, beginning of February 2020, in which several of them said this virus has features that look very like the features that a Chinese lab has been putting into this kind of virus for some time now. And that worries us. We think it may have been an accident in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, they said that to each other privately on emails. They got on the phone together on the Saturday, the 1st of February 2020, and they discussed this. And even after that phone call, they exchanged emails saying, we still think it's quite a likely possibility. But within four days, they had agreed amongst themselves to draft a scientific paper saying they could rule this out for certain. 
and nothing had changed in those four days. Well, one thing did change a few days after that, which was a pangolin virus appearing, which at first sight was thought to be very similar, and that might have meant that it was an intermediate, but it turned out not to be nearly similar enough and not to have the key feature, so they had to drop that excuse. So we don't really know what changed their minds in secret and without them telling us these Western virologists, including Anthony Fauci, Jeremy Farah, Christian Anderson, Eddie Holmes, and a number of other leading virologists. We don't really know what changed their minds, but it's possible it was political rather than scientific. They glimpsed the reality of what effect it would have on their scientific enterprise and on their collaboration with China and on the fact that they had been transferring technologies and sciences to that Chinese lab at a time when you really weren't supposed to be doing those kind of experiments in the United States. What do you think at this point is the probability that COVID originated in the Wuhan lab versus coming from one of these other places? And what are the major pieces of evidence that made you come to that assessment? Well, I often hear people say, but all previous pandemics began in nature and with a natural encounter. So it's pretty unlikely that this one suddenly comes from a lab. But of course, that doesn't take into account the fact that in the last 20 years since the SARS epidemic, there has been a massive increase in virus hunting in wildlife and a massive increase in experiments on coronaviruses in particular for the first time in history. So that changes Bayesian calculation, I would think. But then you ask about why towards the end of 2021 and, well, within two years of the pandemic, we are getting statements from some of the scientists involved saying that they have dispositive evidence, that is to say evidence that really does rule out the alternatives, that it started in that seafood market. It turned out that their dispositive evidence was not dispositive at all. It was extremely weak. It was merely a geographical correlation between some of the early cases and the market, which was not a great surprise because in the first few weeks, you were not allowed to send a sample for testing for COVID unless the person had an association with the market. (laughs) So there was a circular argument there, which was pretty striking. But for me, and I think for my co-author, Alina Chan, one of the most influential pieces of information that came to us, well, there are really two, I think. First is the fact that they would not release the database of viruses they were working on in that lab. We know because they've published them, the viruses they were working on up till the end of 2015, but we know none of the viruses or very few of the ones they were working on after that date. And they have a database. They had a database. They took it offline on the 12th of September, 2019, and they keep refusing to bring it back online. And we have tried to ask them through intermediaries and directly why they won't tell us what's in that database, because it would very quickly exonerate them if it doesn't contain anything related to SARS-CoV-2. And the purpose of the database was to help humanity predict and prevent the next pandemic. So you'd think they'd be eager to share it with us. The second piece of evidence that weighed pretty heavily in favor of the lab in our minds was a document called the Defuse Proposal, which was a grant application to DARPA, part of the Pentagon, from the EcoHealth Alliance in the United States and the Wuhan Institute of Virology in collaboration to do $14 million worth of work on SARS-like coronaviruses. And one of the experiments they proposed to do was to insert into a novel SARS-like coronavirus from bats the very sequences 
that have turned up in this one and that make it so infectious. Now, that is as close as you can get to a recipe for making SARS-CoV-2. And the fact that document was kept secret, we only found out about it because of a leak in September 2021, and the fact that it clearly involved the very institute within a mile or two of where this happened, does to us suggest that there is a strong case to answer that, if you like, the burden of proof is now on those who would say it's not the lab. Well, Matt, you also left out one other key piece of information is that particular piece has not been found anywhere else in nature, right? To be fair, furin cleavage sites are found in other viruses, including other coronaviruses, but not in any SARS-like coronavirus. That's the key point. And the first paper that came out saying it didn't come out of a lab said, look, it's got a furin cleavage site. That's unique in the SARS-like coronaviruses. It is positively selected against in bats, which is the natural habitat of this virus. So you wouldn't expect to find it in a natural virus. Nonetheless, we predict that very soon we will find one with that feature in it. They actually said that very clearly. We predict that we will find a SARS-like coronavirus with a furin cleavage site in it. Well, two years on, 200 such viruses have been found, roughly speaking. None of them have this feature in it except SARS-CoV-2. So again, in Bayesian terms, the probability steadily shifts towards the lab leak. So Matt, is it also not possible that there's way more of this research in various places going on on top of this, meaning we are only finding out about this virus because it escaped the lab, but research always continues in whatever area it is in, right? It's very hard to stop scientists if they're not actively stopped by regulation or laws from continuing. So wouldn't it be fair to say that gain-of-function research is probably going to continue even after COVID? That seems a reasonable assumption to make or not. Yes, and we have to be a little bit careful with the terminology here. Gain-of-function research includes some quite useful things. Putting the ability to fix nitrogen into a wheat plant is gaining function for that wheat plant, but it's not dangerous. So there's a subset of -of gain-of-function research that we're worried about. Gain-of-function research of concern is sometimes the phrase that's used. And yes, there is no evidence that we've slowed down the rate of doing these experiments as a result of the pandemic. I often talk to scientists who say, look, we don't need to find out what happens. We should stop dangerous experiments as well as stopping dangerous markets. Isn't that the rational thing to do? And I say, yeah, but we're doing neither. There's been no great clampdown on the sale of wildlife in Southeast Asia, and there's been no great clampdown on virology experiments of the kind that can do this. We know that because there have been such experiments to be done on SARS-CoV-2 in labs during and after the pandemic. There was a famous one at Boston University that was working on SARS and MERS. Yes, you're right. There ought to be more regulation. Now, I'm not a generally a very pro-regulation person. I can see the ways too often regulation creates perverse incentives, that creates barriers to entry and things like that. And I think there are better ways, including shame and ostracism and cultural change and things like that, for limiting dangerous behavior in, in human societies. But of course, I think there should be some regulation. And a point occurred to me when I was listening to Mark Lipsitch talk about this at a conference in Geneva two weeks ago, when he pointed out that to get permission from an ethics committee to do an experiment on animals in a university now requires 
very, very stringent regulation and very, very careful oversight about the ethics of what you're doing, whether you're being ethical to your human subjects, whether you're being ethical to your animal subjects. There's no such committee to discuss whether you're being safe in terms of a virus escape. And scientists will push the envelope. The incentive is always to produce a paper that can be published in a high-impact journal. And to do that, you have to do something that's pretty spectacular. And some of these experiments, creating chimeras between two different SARS-like viruses, the spike gene from one and the backbone from another, are brilliant experiments, extraordinarily difficult to do, involving very sophisticated reverse genetics and synthetic biology techniques, which would get you published in high-impact journals. They just also happen to be extraordinarily risky experiments with no great practical benefit for mankind. In chemistry, if you produce a chemical that's highly poisonous and that can poison a thousand people with a teaspoonful, at least you've still only got the teaspoon that you've made, not more. In biology, you've got a teaspoonful of viruses that can turn into a world full of viruses. So the risk of escape for these kind of things is far greater. None of this is things I was saying three years ago, by the way. I was on the side of people who were being very reassuring about this. And you know, I'm a champion of biotechnology, both in agriculture and in medicine. And the point is there are ways of doing the experiments you want to do to find out how the spike gene works or how dangerous particular spike genes are or something. You can do those kind of experiments in pseudoviruses, in bacterial artificial chromosomes, i.e. in things that aren't real live viruses that if they got out could cause a pandemic. The really worrying thing is, as I like to say, is, I mean, let's be honest, COVID was not a particularly lethal virus. And, you know, what if this was a lethal virus? What would have happened? Well, I still maintain, particularly for respiratory viruses, which don't persist very long in the environment, that there is a negative correlation between infectivity and lethality, that they evolve quite quickly to be mild. I mean, it's no accident there are 200 kinds of the common cold, none of which kill you. That's not true of insect-borne viruses. It's not true of waterborne viruses. It's not true of sexually transmitted viruses. But for respiratory viruses, it does tend to be true. And there's a very good theory about why this is. Professor Paul Ewald has developed and we saw this with COVID, it evolved into Omicron, which was the mildest virus. That took over from all the other variants eventually. But eventually is the key word here, because I have a nasty feeling that those early lockdowns actually encouraged the virus to stay virulent. You know, that Alpha and Delta were quite virulent strains that took over from the original strain. They were a bit more infectious, but they were just as dangerous. And that was because when you think about it, in the first lockdown, we were telling people, if you get sick and you're not particularly unwell, stay at home. Don't go out. Don't give it to anyone. If you get really ill, go to a hospital and make sure you give it to as many healthcare workers as you meet. Now, that's encouraging the virus to stay lethal. Yeah, the extent to which they were not thinking in equilibrium. They were not thinking about the equilibrium effect of the actions. It was frightening to me. Well, and one of our previous episodes was on this too. I think they were very much engaged in their short-term reputation management, not in the long-term outcome of public health. Yes, and in that respect, there's a very important point which we quite often forget, which is that in January, February, March of 2020, almost nobody is expecting this to be a pandemic, let alone one that lasts two or three years. 
everybody's expecting this to be like SARS, a nasty fright that the world got. Quite a lot of people died, but it was eventually brought under control before it caused a global pandemic. Now, under those circumstances, you might well think you can get away with suppressing crucial bits of information and taking some pretty extraordinary actions because you're not expecting scores of people to be demanding to see your emails under freedom of information two or three years after the event to find out what you were thinking. So I think it's worth remembering that, that some of the actions taken were with a view to shutting things down for just a week or two till the whole story goes away. And if they'd realized that it was not going to go away, they would have acted differently. I think that you've mentioned certain reasons for why people might have incentives to favor one theory over another. But there may be people that would argue to you that you have an incentive to say that it more likely came out of a lab. Say, actually, I'm not even sure that you do have that incentive because I'm pretty sure that you were subjected to lots of criticism for it. But when it comes to writing the book, it was probably better for you to say it came out of the lab than not. What would you say to somebody who would argue that with you? Well, I would say there's an awful lot of people with an incentive who have a vested interest in it not coming from the lab. Scientists, for a start, environmentalists, they want to argue that this is an example of man's interference and encroachment on nature, whereas the lab lets that theory off the hook sort of thing, etc., etc. People in politics who want to deal with international relations with China, it complicates our relationship with China. Chinese government officials. <laughs> There's a mass of people with a strong incentive for this not to be a lab leak. Now, with the possible exception of me and a few other people, I can't think of anyone who has a direct vested interest in it coming from a lab. There's no one who's suddenly a lot better off financially or reputationally or anything, except a few of us who've been arguing that this needs to be taken seriously. And I would say that if you read our book, you will find we make as strong a case as we can for it not to have come from a lab, and then we make as strong a case as we can in the opposite direction. So we are trying to say this is a really interesting story either way, and we think our book would have been just as interesting whichever result came out, because discussing how the theory that it came out of a lab came to be so strong and came to be so widely believed is itself interesting whether it's the right theory or not. I really like that argument because I must say that as soon as theories are not allowed to be discussed, given the scientific gene that I have, it rubs me the wrong way. I feel that it needs to be possible to openly discuss it. And if we then come to the conclusion that it's not it, then so be it. But it cannot be ruled out beforehand before we even start discussing it. That, I think, is not a good way to approach these issues. Completely right. It's possible to be too open-minded in this world, but very, very few people are. Matt, I've read your book, or most of it, and I think, I think it's an open and shut case. Just think about the following facts. The seafood market has been ruled out. We haven't found an intermediate host. The bats live a thousand miles away, and there's no evidence of any infection between where the bats live and Wuhan. And the Chinese have done whatever they can to shut down any investigation. It seems to me those four facts together are just overwhelming. You know, there isn't another possibility right now, right? The pangolins are out. What about the raccoon dogs? Recently, I heard something about raccoon dogs suddenly. What, what happened? Yes, the raccoon dog theory is an interesting one because we said in the book that there is evidence that raccoon dogs were on sale in the market. And yet the Chinese 
results from testing the market don't mention raccoon dogs. So it looks like they missed them along with a few other species. And they are a species that is fairly susceptible to SARS-CoV-2. Not very, but fairly. So maybe they had it. And then George Gao, who I mentioned before, former head of the CDC, wrote a paper summarizing again the very details of the testing they did of animals in the markets. And it included evidence that there was raccoon dog DNA in some of the swabs they took from the market. And a bunch of Western scientists saw that data dumped in a genetic database before Gao had published his paper, grabbed it and said, wow, raccoon dogs. They put it on the mainstream media all over the world, raccoon dogs found, possibly infected. And before you knew it, I was having people saying to me, they found infected raccoon dogs. And I was saying, no, they haven't. They found raccoon dog DNA and they found SARS-CoV-2 DNA in the market. We knew both those things two years ago. Nothing has changed. And they would say, no, no, it's definitely been found. And I said, no, read it carefully. Read beyond the headlines. Well, what happened last week was that Jesse Bloom came out with another analysis in which he showed that there were several raccoon dog samples found in the market. Only one of them had any association at all with SARS-CoV-2. And that association was that one of 200 million DNA fragments that they found in that sample was the virus. Now, that is not a strong correlation. In fact, what he said was the raccoon dog DNA was negatively associated with the virus. In other words, wherever you found the raccoon dog DNA, you were very unlikely to find the virus. Whereas wherever you found human being DNA, you were quite likely to find the virus. So, I mean, that really was the death knell for the raccoon dog theory. So as Jonathan says, the pangolins were a red herring, the raccoon dogs are a red herring, were left without any plausible animal that could have infected it. And Jonathan made the very good point that we should have seen it crop up along the pathways between Yunnan and Wuhan in farms, in other markets, among people who were handling animals, among food handlers, things like that, which is exactly what we saw in SARS 20 years ago, but that has not been the case. It's this one unique outbreak in this one city right next to this one lab that we have to deal with. One last question, Matt. You know, I was interested in the seeker in your book. Is this the only thing he's investigated or has he investigated other implausible theories that have turned out to be correct? The answer to your question is no, this is the only thing he's done of this kind. But when we got a chance to talk to him, we said, so what's your secret? How come you keep finding medical theses, doctoral theses, other important documents in China, secret documents, or at least very well-hidden documents that describe pieces of vital research about this kind of virus? And he said, I just love the internet. I know how to make search engines work for me, which is a lovely phrase, I thought. When we first got talking to him, we assumed he was either the pseudonym for a highly sophisticated CIA operation that was pretending to be in India, or that he was a brilliant Indian intelligence, blah, blah, blah. He was a bloke living with his parents in the city of Bhubaneswar after doing a film degree highly, highly intelligent bloke and very good at what he did, who had just got interested in this topic and thought he'd do some digging. And he turned up some spectacular stuff. He's gone quiet. He hasn't said anything for a year now, but it's an extraordinary story. And he's only one of several. I mean, there's a brilliant Spaniard called Francisco Ribera who put together a database of it, which worked, he was able to work out exactly which 
cave or mine shaft those Chinese scientists visited on which day and which samples they collected there. And it took a huge amount of work. And for example, he said, look, I think they collected 1,320 samples from the Mojiang mine, which is the most interesting one. Well, they eventually published something saying, yes, we collected 1,322. So he was out by two. And again, Francisco is a He's basically the IT consultant auditor in Madrid. So there's a real story of citizen science here, of ordinary people achieving what scientists who were paid to do it should have been doing. Well, Matt, this has just been fascinating. And thank you so much for spending the time with us. It's been really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. And it's great to see you again, Jonathan. And great to meet you, Jules. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn. The All Else Equal Podcast is a production of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and is produced by University FM.